Greetings. Welcome to Greta's Generation Podcast. This is your host, Kyle Herman, at the University College London. In this second season two of Greatest Generation Podcast, I interview some people that are quite close to my heart. In fact, most of the interviewees are researchers at UCL. So by interviewing mainly researchers from the University College of London, what I show through this season is how many different approaches are taken with regard to research and climate change. For example, I interview the head of the Sustainable Global Resources Department. Indeed, I also interview the founder and head of the Islands Laboratory. I interview some younger researchers, which I work very closely with, from both the Sustainable Resources and Circular Economy Division, as well as from Global Governance Institute, where I'm currently placed. And then I also get into some interviewees from other universities, such as the Fondazione Enrico Matte, or FIM in Milano, and the European Institute for Environment and Economics, also in Milano. I have the pleasure to interview others from different universities throughout the world. But again, it's great to be able to focus on UCL. I must thank our sponsor. This podcast is only possible because I've obtained a seed funding grant from the UCL Faculty of Social and Historical Sciences, Dean's Strategic Fund. So I'm very happy to thank my sponsor again and be able to produce this second season. On that note, if anyone's listening out there that would like to sponsor a third season, I'm on the lookout for that. And I have gotten a lot of encouraging feedback on the first season, so I'm quite happy and encouraged to take that on. So without further ado, I'll let you jump into the episodes. They are in no specific sequential order. However, as usual, you will be able to see the details on the website, www.greatestgeneration.com. That's Greta, G-R-E-T-A, as in Greta Thunberg, the teenage climate change activist, who inspired this show not only because of the brilliant work she's done for climate change policy, but because it has become quite evident to me that it's more and more likely that her generation will actually have to make much of the changes and sacrifices in order to save the climate, which is unfortunate, but the show is meant to inspire this younger generation by demonstrating an array of different career paths they may take, or to suggest that if they are indeed worried about climate change, they needn't sit along and fret and have undue anxiety. If they decide, if should the younger generation decide not to pursue a career around this, there are ample opportunities to simply engage with civic activity and protests and even just learning more about it would be helpful because there is a lot of misinformation out there and the more we can all learn and have the truthful dialogue around these issues, the better that we can all be in terms of confronting the climate crisis. Mark, 
great to have you on the show. I'm really thrilled and excited to have you as the first interviewee at Sussex University, where I'll soon be joining. We will be working together on a couple of projects, which I'm sure we'll get into later in the show. But first, if you wouldn't mind, just a brief introduction, a brief introduction of yourself, and then we can get into the show. Sure. I have what is euphemistically called an unusual academic career progression in that I had a previous life as a physiotherapist in the National Health Service and before that an aid worker in Mozambique and Angola. So I started my PhD at the University of Manchester in 2014 and it ended up being an analysis, description and analysis of incumbent resistance to policy change. The case study was Australian coal interests versus carbon pricing. And this all fits within the questions within socio-technical transitions of power, of political power, of regime resistance. So the tools that I developed through that PhD, I'm now hopefully applying in my current role at Sussex. First, I'll just go rewind the tape a little bit because, well, it seems kind of interesting, your career progression. I just want to unpack that a bit. So what kinds of decisions got you to change the career a bit and then eventually take on the PhD? What was the impetus for that, if any? Oh, goodness, I could construct all sorts of coherent narratives which would claim to show a set of strategic decisions, and that would be very comforting. I'd like to drop in here, though, one thing that I've always found very useful, which is Karl Mannheim's notion of what he called cohort effects, which is essentially the things that you're exposed to in the world between 18 and 22, more or less, are the things that will probably interest slash obsess you for the rest of your life. And when I was 18, 19, 20, the world was gripped by concern about what we then called the greenhouse effect. I was at university in Australia, and although I was not studying politics or economics or the sorts of things that I maybe wish I'd studied, This was still a very live issue, and I've been interested in climate change and human responses to it ever since then. And so in all my other jobs and as a physiotherapist, I was a little unusual in that I was getting access to peer review academic articles about climate and socio-technical transitions and reading them for fun. I know that sounds a little odd and niche, and it is a little odd and niche. So I worked as a physiotherapist for 12 years, a bit longer. I was doing amputee rehabilitation, and I'd actually become a physio in order to do amputee rehabilitation in what we euphemistically call the developing world. I wanted to go to maybe Cambodia, which I'd visited and worked in, or East Timor, maybe back to Mozambique and Angola. And it's really just kind of historical accident that I didn't and that I ended up now talking to you 
rather than working as a physio in one of those countries there were just some sort of sliding door moments to do with climate change activism but here i am I do want to get into the socio-technical transitions a bit later. That will also deserve a bit of unpacking because it's a complex subject. But since you mentioned Australia and when you're a bit younger, maybe it's a good time to discuss things such as your paper, A Form of Madness on the Australian Climate, and then I suppose that your PhD dissertation also addressed this. That's an interesting overlap because, well, actually my master's thesis dealt a lot with lobbying power and climate politics in the EU. So I'm sure we have some interesting research overlaps with regard to that. But yeah, if you want to just discuss Australian climate politics and policy, and if you're able to segregate those two, policy and politics, that would be welcome. Oh, no small challenges here. I'd like to um, get access to your masters. That sounds really interesting. So... The way that I came to describe my PhD thesis and think about it was that it was not a who done it or a why done it, but a how done it. So Australia, as listeners will probably know, is incredibly blessed with sun and space and wind and opportunities for renewable energy, some great scientists, a reasonable industrial base. And yet, until very recently, Australia was still getting sort of north of 80% of its electricity from the burning of coal, despite the fact that the country is exquisitely vulnerable to climate change and droughts, heat waves, etc. And despite the fact that Australian policymakers and politicians have been aware of climate change for at least 35 years, to go back to my Manhunt quote. So something has to explain why change has not happened. And my PhD's title was Enacted Inertia. So the point being that it's easy to say, oh, carbon lock-in, you know, and you cite UNRWA, and you say business lobbies or structural power of business within state and you can deploy all sorts of theories there. But somebody has to do the hard work of slowing things down, of gumming up the policy subsystems, etc. And so my PhD examined that. In terms of the split between policy and politics, I think What's really interesting in Australia and is played out in other countries as well is the way that there is a consensus on climate change to not do very much that would interfere with business as usual. Now, in some countries, the business-friendly political party or the more business-friendly political party mixes that in with culture war and with various forms of denial. In other countries, less so. But Australia is a pretty good example of how there's been sort of a seesaw effect here back and forth and how there's bipartisan consensus between the two big or three big parties in Australia to not do very much to interfere with 
the trajectory of more coal, more gas. You know, there's some talk occasionally about carbon capture and storage, and there's some support for renewables on the basis that it will be additional to rather than a replacement for the fossil fuel basis of the economy. Does that answer your question? Yeah, that answers it quite quite well. I do see a lot of overlaps between Australian policy politics with regard to climate and the United States. So I think that brings up an add-on question because in the US we've also grappled with this carbon tax versus carbon trading. What are the key differences? What are the pros and cons? So I made a fairly conscious decision early on in my PhD that I wasn't going to go down that particular rabbit hole and I was instead going to almost black box that discussion because what was interesting was how both were very actively resisted by the fossil fuel lobbies and their allies in Australia. In in Australia and to some extent in the United States, the sequence was first a carbon tax was proposed twice in Australia in the late 80s and then again in 94, 95. And this, of course, overlaps with Clinton's BTU tax. And then the middle of that decade, emissions trading schemes become fashionable. I've just actually written something on my All Our Yesterday's site about this. So to sound very pompous, but to kind of quote or paraphrase myself, what's interesting in both forms of carbon pricing is that if they had actually been implemented when they were first proposed in the late 80s, early 90s, and you know, the OECD and the IEA and various other organizations were proposing this, and Europe had a big battle about a carbon tax and incumbents destroyed it with the help of the UK government in sort of 91, 92. If these things had been implemented then, they would have functioned as a straightforward Pigu economist would have it, that there's an externality that is being priced, certain behaviours are being discouraged, and there would have been an incremental, or so the story goes, or the story you can construct, there would have been a gradual phasing out of the worst forms of fossil fuel pollution, starting with coal, but moving quickly on to gas, and the market would have provided wind, solar, energy efficiency, etc. All right, let's switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit about your transition into Sussex University and then, of course, about Sprue and and then this Edric project. So we're going to go across the world from Australia and getting a bit more into the UK climate policy and then talk about the project that we'll soon work on together. Sure. So obviously the Science Policy Research Unit is a pretty consequential place if you're interested in the academic work around socio-technical transitions. So I had visited it as a PhD student and was well aware of many of the academics there. And I repeatedly applied for jobs. I got shortlisted. I did some good interviews and was just pipped at the post by people who were better qualified. I did one truly appalling interview, which makes me cringe. 
that I learned from it. And crucially, there are some really lovely and supportive people there, and I can't mention their names without sounding incredibly sycophantic. But there are some very, very generous academics at Sprue. I'm not saying they weren't at University of Manchester too. So the IDRIC project that I'm working on, for your listeners, the UK has, for various reasons, been, quote, successful, unquote, in beginning to decarbonise its economy, not necessarily for the reasons that the UK government will tell you, but emissions have gone down. But for them to go down even faster, you have to tackle the so-called hard-to-abate sectors. So it's, at least in theory, relatively easy to replace electricity generation with offshore wind, (laughs) onshore wind, etc. But what do you do about steel, cement, glass, ceramics, etc.? Because the industrial processes in all of these release CO2 and cannot easily be replaced. So the UK government signed up to Paris, the Paris Agreement, to reduce emissions, blah, blah. And then in 2019, they also said net zero by 2050, which was up from 80%, which had been the target, and 60%, which had been the target before that. And that meant that various industries who had comfortably assumed that they would be part of the 20% that was allowed to keep emitting realized that no they too were going to be expected to reduce their emissions to net zero, which is different from actual zero. So then what happens in circumstances like this? Well, existing academic collaborations like Ukirk and Tyndall and so forth get asked to up their involvement, but also new groups form. So the Industrial Decarbonisation Research and Innovation Centre has been set up with £20 million, which is not nothing, from Innovate UK, from UCRI. And most of the projects within it are mechanical and chemical engineering and and the like to try and speed up industrial decarbonisation processes. There's a certain number of social science projects, depending on how you count as many of 12 of the 45 projects are social science loosely defined. And the project that I'm working on as the research fellow under the principal investigator, Matthew Lockwood, is the politics of industrial decarbonisation policy. So who's making the industrial decarbonisation policy? Who's pushing for these industrial clusters? Why? How? Who's going to benefit? Who's going to lose? Uh, It's a kind of policy histories approach that we're using. Yeah. Well, I do want to sort of unpack what it actually means, socio-technical transitions, and then as well get into what this means, industrial clusters and innovation clusters, because I think it's not so clear to most of the audience. Okay, so I have a, a go-to analogy involving time travel. Imagine that Doctor Who lands his or her TARDIS 2,000 years ago and scoops up a sailor on a Phoenician trading vessel in the Mediterranean and brings them forward 100 years and then 100 years and then 100 years 
each time to look at the new wooden sailing ships. And each hundred years, the ships are maybe a little bit more complex, a little bit bigger. There's maybe some new navigational aids. But basically, this Phoenician understands what's going on, that a ship has been built. There have been forests, which trees have been selected, cut down, turned into planks. Other people have made sails. Other people have made ropes. Some sailors have been trained. There is a, a whole social system around this technology of sailing ships and it's understandable but then between 1800 and 1900 everything changes so if the phoenician is brought to the year 1900 and sees a huge metal steamship where wind does not matter and there's coal being used the phoenician's mind is going to be absolutely blown and that's because in that hundred years there was a socio-technical transition it was contested, it was messy, it proceeded faster and slower, and various historians have studied it. So that's a socio-technical transition because there's a new social order around mining and metal and shipbuilding from sheets of metal. There's coal miners involved instead. The old industries are kind of losing out, being pushed to the margins. That's what we call a socio-technical transition. And it's happened since the late 19th century around mobility from horse and cart to motor car. It's happened around heat and light from biomass through to electricity grid or gas and then electricity grids. And the reason that this is important is that all of the transitions I've mentioned and others that I could mention have been from relatively low carbon ways of doing things to high carbon. And now that we are admitting that climate change is a thing, we're saying to ourselves, well, we need sustainability socio-technical transitions, which happen faster than a century and are directed in a way that the old ones were not. So people are running around trying to use history as an analogy and as a guide to having rapid decarbonisation of various overlapping socio-technical transitions around heat, mobility, lighting, food, whatever. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's perfectly clear. If you brought the Phoenician forward to the year 2022, they would have a nervous breakdown. So bearing that in mind, does it seem like, and you did mention the UK government has funded this Egypt project, does it seem like in the last few years, UK politicians and policymakers are sort of grasping the research coming out of through and elsewhere and trying to create this sustainable socio-technical transition to some degree? Oh, goodness, you're asking me to pass judgment on how impactful Strew has been. I'm not going to uh, stick stick my hand in that particular uh, jar of trouble. It's, it's always there. We have to once in a while think that all the research we're doing has real-world impacts. Look, look um, one of the things I'd say is that Sprue is going through a period of massive expansion. Its work is getting 
cited in select committees, it's turning up in the media. Sprue and Sussex Energy Group are winning new grants, not on their own necessarily, but in collaboration with creds and or other universities, etc., etc. So I think Sprue has had and continues to have a deserved, but I would say that, wouldn't I, high profile. I don't want to use cliches like cutting edge, but oh, hell, why not? Cutting edge. The picture is more mixed about whether many politicians are able to grapple with this because politicians are famously you know very busy and have lots of competition for their time and attention and are not necessarily rewarded for engaging closely with policy debates let alone academic debates so that's a harder question to answer but you know i'm sure if you ask the bosses they would point to the ref they would point to the winning of research contracts, to hiring all sorts of keen young researchers, even some from overseas. Yeah, that's good. It does seem that the UK has put its money where its mouth is over the last decade in terms of climate change. It's taken a big time leadership role in putting together the climate conference in Glasgow. It has, I think now, the most offshore wind energy out of any country. So that at a rapid clip, they've been installing offshore wind, which just became the cheapest form of renewable energy in the UK. So I want to just briefly touch on that. But just yesterday, at the same time, they approved a new nuclear power plant at a cost of $20 billion. So perhaps we can just touch on the politics of renewable energy against nuclear power as well, because in addition to that, there's the Hinkley nuclear energy power plant, which is a bit close to London and I think financed by China and France. So there's a lot of politics that we could jump into around that. There is, but I'm going to look before I leap because I, as I've aged, have come to both accept and even celebrate my fantastic levels of ignorance outside a very small field of expertise. And on renewables and nuclear, I can give you lots of opinions, which maybe are sometimes based in fact, but maybe not. I'm not the best judge. The person you really want to talk to about the politics of nuclear is Phil Johnston, and his colleague Andy Sterling, both of whom are at Sprue. And on offshore wind, to go back to something you said, I'd point you to a really good paper by those two academics and Benjamin Sovacool from 2015-16, where they examined what was actually being supported by the coalition government and then the conservative government and they were much more keen on fracking and nuclear than they were offshore wind offshore wind is now held up as this sort of talismanic we should learn lessons if you read about as i do about hydrogen or ccus witnesses to select committees are saying well you know offshore wind is a really good success story and if we're going to pursue x or y we should do similar things but also make sure that the supply chains are more localized my reading of the offshore wind story is that it's been a success almost despite the uk government and it got one of its big starts was that 
onshore wind was effectively banned in the UK in sort of 2014-15 because local councils had to do consultations and if anyone objected, the whole process was frozen. So that really helped offshore wind develop. And then, of course, you've got economies of scale. You've got some great geographical resources. Companies like Siemens and Dong, I think, you know, did put in the effort and there were support mechanisms. But it's not quite the deliberate unfolding that some people would have you believe. To recap on how you asked me to sort of tell a story of how I got to where I am, it's very easy to look back and cherry pick certain events and decisions and facts and turn that into a self-servingly coherent and clever narrative. But I think history is a lot messier and politics is certainly a lot messier than that. Yeah, that's a great measured response. I really enjoyed reading some of uh, your blog posts. I, I think, oh, correct me if I'm wrong, all of our yesterdays, or is it Mark Hudson.net, or all of our yesterdays is the name of it. Well, there are two uh, separate accounts. I've blogged under pseudonyms in the past, but MarkHudson.net's been going since 2014, and it is sometimes about climate politics. It's a lot of it has been about the mechanics of social movement organizing because I was involved in something called Climate Emergency Manchester. I, I co-founded that. And I'm fascinated by how social movement organizations and social movements do and do not succeed in recruiting and retaining people, in challenging bad decisions and bad decision making. You know, sometimes it's just reviews of films that I've seen. So I did a review of the new Top Gun film, which I thought was very interesting the film more than my review perhaps all i yesterdays i've tried twice before and it is working this time it is at least one blog per day about something that happened on that day in the last 200 years to do with climate change so today's the 21st of july in 1991 there was a conference in melbourne australia called Greenhouse Action for the 90s. And so I did a blog post about that and what it decided. And crucially, these All Our Yesterday's posts are always structured around sort of what happened, why it matters, what we can learn from that, and then what happened next. And so it's an attempt to get us out of this eternal present this eternal Groundhog Day that we seem to live in, where climate politics only ever goes back as far as the past consequential COP. So, you know, leading up to Paris, all anyone talked about was Copenhagen. Leading up to Copenhagen, all anyone talked about was Kyoto. But there's actually, depending on how you count it, sort of a solid 50 years, 5-0, of talking about, worrying about, promising to do something about climate change and before we make the same mistake for the 70 gazillionth time i think it's worth reflecting on where these mistakes have come from or you know depending on how you classify them as mistakes the people who have been continuing to sell coal oil and gas in a carbon constrained world they may not judge what's happening now as a mistake they may be quite happy because they're the incumbent actors in the regime, they're doing quite nicely. Right. It is astounding to recognize that the Stockholm Conference on Environment in 1972 and then shortly after 
that had a number of other global conferences around climate coming to the creation of the United Nations Framework Convention of Climate Change in the early 90s and the IPCC, the International Panel on Climate Change. Ah, intergovernmental yeah. panel. That's really oh, important. Sorry. Yes, yes. But, but, well, thank you for that. The, the, I'm not nit, sorry, I'm not nitpicking, but the whole point is that this is something that governments are able to contain and constrain in, and this was a direct consequence of the United States Department of State feeling that it had been sort of outmaneuvered and bounced into an ozone treaty by atmospheric scientists. So when in sort of 85, 86, carbon dioxide became the thing to be worried about, the Reagan administration's Department of State, led at that point by George Schultz, made sure that the next big international scientific collaboration that might be consequential for policy making was something that governments could more easily discipline. Okay. Yeah. And this isn't really me talking nonsense. Yeah. There's decent right. academic work was done at the time and since about this. A quick footnote which which goes back to some of our earlier discussion and you just mentioned the Kyoto Protocol in 1997 was the first landmark climate agreement through the UNFCCC. It seems like there's quite a bit of evidence that the U.S. administration, even though the U.S. did not eventually ratify the Kyoto Protocol, the U.S. interests were able to make sure that a carbon tax wasn't baked into it, that instead some degree of carbon trading Whereas the EU and to a lesser degree Japan, I believe, were much more enthusiastic about a carbon tax. But yeah, I don't know if you have something quick to say about that. Yeah, I mean, that's my scanty knowledge of the history, too, is that the European Union was not enthusiastic about what was called joint implementation and emissions trading for the reasons I've alluded to in my blog post yesterday that it's open to arbitrage, to gaming, to making some people very wealthy without actually reducing emissions because your carbon price would have to be for formidably high to drive investment decisions. So the Europeans resisted this, but in the end, the Europeans rolled over as they have on many occasions. And as you say, the irony is the Americans then didn't go ahead with it. What would have happened if the Supreme Court hadn't installed George Bush, despite what was going on in Florida, if we'd had President Al Gore? That's uh, one of history's counterfactuals, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, always interesting to think about that one. I would encourage the uh, listeners to check out both your blogs. I think they're really interesting and follow up with you with any questions or comments. I'm cognizant of your time as a, as a researcher, especially at Sussex and Sprue. So we'll go to the last part of the show. So I'd like to ask you if you could go back in time and give yourself a bit of advice when you were 20 years of age, what advice might that be? As a human being or as a researcher? As a human being. Oh, so many. <laughs> um, it's really important, and I fail on this all the time, to be kind to ourselves and obviously especially other people. And I think that was important in 1990 and it's so much more important now because of COVID, 
because of climate, quote, anxiety, unquote, which is really just climate terror. And we need to be compassionate to our former selves and our future selves without just sort of letting everything hang out and saying that everything's going to be okay. But compassion and kindness really matter. I'll skip ahead to the researcher thing. I think if you can find mentors who will force you to develop really good data collection, data storage, and data analysis skills, you'll be ahead of the game. And of course, the writing matters as well. In 1990, the technologies didn't exist. The internet was very new. But some of the other technologies I look back and wish I'd gotten on top of earlier. I use voice recognition software. That's really helpful. But these skills come and go and you have to keep updating. The best way to do that is to have a, to be a good member of a good network of friends and acquaintances who can share skills, knowledge and mutual support. That's great. Very good stuff, Mark. So then the last pointed question, briefly, could you give some advice to university students that are just about to get into their career right now? Same stuff that I just said about investing in developing the skills around finding data, storing data, analyzing data, and then the old Latin phrase about carpe the diems. Thanks for listening to this latest edition of Greatest Generation Podcast. I would direct your attention if you'd like to find out more information on this episode or any other episodes to greatestgeneration.com. Last quick note, thanks to the UCL's Faculty of Social and Historical Sciences Dean's Strategic Fund, which has again sponsored this second season. Hope to see you next time. <laughs>